Welcome back to Getting to the Bottom of It, the Hatchet's weekly news podcast. I'm your host, Sejal Govindrao. This is the last episode of 2021, and today we are recapping the top campus headlines of the year. The Hatchet's news team joins me to break them down. 2021 got off to a jarring start. Six days into January, a pro-Trump mob stormed the Capitol, and Hatchet managing editor Zach Schoenfeld was on the steps of the Capitol reporting live for the Hatchet during the insurrection. So Zach, you're here with us today. Can you walk us through the timeline of the events? Sure. So on January 6th, my day started at about 545 in the morning when I arrived on the ellipse for the Stop the Steal rally, um, which is now known as the rally that uh, President Trump spoke at um, that that led to the insurrection at the Capitol. Um, So starting off in the morning, there were uh, quite a number of speeches, the president obviously being the most high profile speaker, but it also included speeches from Rudy Giuliani, Uh, members of Congress like Madison Cawthorn, um, other members of the Trump family. Uh, So it was a multi-hour event that really was riling up that crowd that culminated in that president's speech where he told them to march down Pennsylvania Avenue and go to the Capitol. And then after he finished up, this was about uh, noon or so, midday, folks were coming out of the ellipse, out of that security perimeter and began heading towards the Capitol. And obviously they marched down Pennsylvania Avenue, arriving at the Capitol. Some were already there during the, the rally. Um, and as, as was uh, well covered uh, in many different media outlets, things just went from there. How do you think this insurrection set the tone for the political climate this year? Well, as you said, it was definitely a jarring start to the year, not only the 6th itself, but in the days that followed between then and the inauguration. I mean, here on campus and in Foggy Bottom, things during the pandemic were already quiet as is with students gone and away from campus, but things took a new level of quiet because there were many areas near the White House and near campus that were completely blocked off. Some areas blocked off to cars and other areas even blocked off to pedestrians. So walking around the streets of DC and here in Foggy Bottom in the days following the insurrection, the the biggest thing that I remember is just how quiet everything was. Um, Truthfully, except for the National Guard troops that, that were marching through campus, there wasn't a lot of sights to see. At the end of January, former Student Association President Howard Brookin stepped down from his post after being accused of sexual misconduct. We have Lauren Sforza, our Student Association editor, here with us. Lauren, can you talk a bit more about this resignation and its aftermath? So at the end of January, a couple of SA vice presidents in the Senate suddenly resigned, claiming that SA President Brookins created a careless work environment after after these senators resigned and called on Brookins to resign. The SA Senate filed impeachment charges against Brookins, which resulted in a few days later of Brookins formally resigning his role as SA President. After this, uh, now, now current SA President Brandon Hill ascended to the position of SA president before launching his campaign in February. And what were the elections like? What did Hill campaign on? Um, Did he talk about wanting to change the culture within the SA at all after the um, resignation of Brookins? Brandon Hill and now SA Vice President Kate Carpenter ran the first ever joint campaign for SA president and vice president 
they campaigned on improving the student life experience here at GW and building up trust with the essay right after Howard Brookins resignation. They focused a lot about improving student spirit and transparency within the essay during their campaign throughout February and March. In May, officials announced University President Thomas LeBlanc will step down at the end of this academic year. Isha Trevedi, Finance Administration Editor for The Hatchet, is with me today. Isha, what prompted this announcement back in May? So the announcement that LeBlanc would be stepping down came after faculty released the results of a faculty survey on university leadership. Um, they conducted the survey in spring 2021 and found the majority of professors had lost confidence in the president. Um, and the survey came on the heels of uh, several layoffs that officials implemented to mitigate the financial impact of the pandemic. Um, it came after the hiring of Heather Swain, who is a disgraced Michigan State University official, um, and several other incidents um, that caused the university community to express disapproval for LeBlanc's actions. I spoke to professors in the spring uh, who said, following the results of the survey, that um, they, they worried LeBlanc had passed a point of no return. And we were waiting after the semester ended to, to see how the situation would turn out uh, when LeBlanc announced that he would be stepping down in May. Yeah, so um, if you could talk a little bit more of how that situation did turn out, transitioning back into this school year, being in person, um, how did it impact the student body and faculty? What were the reactions? What were we seeing? Yeah, uh, faculty students responded in a number of different ways. Um, faculty and students were, were both LeBlanc's biggest critics and uh, highest, uh, biggest sources of praise. Um, the Faculty Association, which is an informal union of professors, um, posted a series of tweets about LeBlanc's retirement that was followed by um, an email to all faculty from board chair Grace Spades uh, saying that she wanted to improve shared governance at the university. Um, she said, quote, I am troubled by the actions of a faction of self-appointed faculty spokespersons whose contributions to this process more closely resemble a campaign to foment discord rather than civil dialogue. But largely, the university community seemed hopeful for what could come next after President LeBlanc's presidency. In August, students and faculty returned to campus fully after being online for over a year due to the coronavirus pandemic. I have Michelle Vaslib, our health and sciences news editor with me. Uh, Michelle, you've had a very busy year covering the coronavirus pandemic. Um, what has that been like? And can you talk a little bit about the transition coming back to campus um, and what the administration's COVID policy looked like? Yeah, of course. So. Last semester, um, the university just brought back 1,500 students. Um, they came back to campus. They had weekly testing. Um, and sort of campus was operating on a much smaller scale. Um, finally, when campus reopened um, fully this semester, campus welcomed about 27,000 students um, this August. So that's 25,500 more than last semester. Um, and obviously this brought a lot of new changes into place. The first week of September during orientation week, there was a brief uptick in cases. And so this sort of caused officials to increase the COVID-19 testing frequency. So that went from once a month to twice a month. Um, and so this schedule change sort of left students struggling um, to find available appointments just because there were so many students trying to get appointments um, twice a month now. And so officials did expand the COVID-19 testing policy 
um, on September 24th. So they added multiple things. Um, they created an asymptomatic standby line at the trailer. They also started to allow external PCR tests. And so that really helped students with um, sort of being able to get their appointments in on time. I think it's also important to note that earlier in November, uh, Mayor Bowser, she did lift the indoor mask mandate throughout DC. Um, the Department of Health just this past Friday actually did say that they still encourage everyone to wear um, their masks inside. University officials have since announced that they will keep the mask mandate at GW. And so that, along with recent developments um, in the Omicron virus, that has also been at the forefront of health and sciences right now. Um, so this Friday, actually, officials announced that they strongly encourage students to get their booster shots. They said that a booster requirement is under active consideration, but as of now, um, students should look into getting booster shots. A week into the semester, starting at the beginning of September, over 200 students were evacuated from Townhouse Row to local hotels due to black mold infestation. I have Zach Blackburn on, who is our Metro editor. Zach, you were at the scene the night of the evacuation. What happened? Can you walk us through the timeline and some of that aftermath? Hi, yeah, it was a pretty chaotic night. There was an email sent out at about six or seven o'clock that night to all of the residents of Townhouse Row, about 200 residents of Townhouse Row, all uh, members of fraternities and sororities. And they were given about three or four hours notice to uh, pack up belongings for a few days and uh, pack them onto a bus and go to one of three hotels in the Foggy Bottom area. And uh, it, it started I, a, a couple days before that when residents there decided to uh, report the conditions to housing officials because there had been reports of mold and reports of sickness. And ultimately, a couple of residents of Townhouse Row developed some pretty severe symptoms, uh, bad nasal congestion, uh, a couple people had fits of coughing up blood. Uh, a couple of residents transported themselves to the hospital to seek treatment for what they believed was mold poisoning. And it, it was a, a quick rem removal, a quick evacuation of Townhouse Row. A lot of students in other residence halls reported black mold infestation. What has the university done to ensure that something like this won't happen again? Yeah, like you said, uh, residents from about 10 other residence halls across campus reported what they suspected, what they suspected to be mold in their rooms and residences. Uh, more than 70 in all talked with Hatchet reporters about uh, uh, the conditions of their rooms. Uh, in response to student concerns, uh, university officials decided to essentially do a, a broad sweep of all of the residence halls to look for uh, mold or other facilities issues. Around the end of September to the beginning of October, students at the university failed to protect sexual assault survivors, sparking backlash from students and conversations about Title IX. Abby, what has been the impact of this this year? 
Yeah, so there's been, um, um, we've seen a massive impact uh, from students kind of opening up this conversation about concerns with Title IX and the Title IX office about a lack of communication and failures to bar um, sexual survivors assailants from campus. So causing sexual assault survivors to feel unsafe on campus. So we've seen a really massive impact and a larger conversation about the Title IX office this year um, from students that started on social media with accounts like GW Protects Rapists going all the way to protests um, like the one that we saw at commencement and one that will also be coming up a demonstration uh, December 8th in Kogan. So students were really concerned and expressing frustrations with a lack of communication from the Title IX office and failures to bar assailants from campus. Um, and they, student leaders said that this was unacceptable. The handling of Title IX violations was unacceptable by the Title IX office. And they wanted to see kind of massive changes made um, to that system to better support survivors of sexual assault. So the group GW Protects Rapists held a protest during commencement. Um, it was about 75 students who marched to commencement um, with signs, just to kind of make their demands known. Um, and we've seen a response from Title IX administrators and the Office of Diversity, Equity and Community Engagement as well. Recently on November 23rd, they released a statement with some changes that they're making to Title IX operations as well as uh, GWPD operations to try and address those demands from student organizations like Students Against Sexual Assault and opening up a dialogue with those students to figure out how they can better support sexual assault survivors in the future. Another big piece of campus news happened on Halloween relatively recently um, with the desecration of the Torah in the Tau Kappa Epsilon fraternity house. Um, and a lot of events unraveled after that. So I have Abby Kennedy, our student life editor, to talk about what happened. So Abby, can you walk us through the timeline of the events from that weekend? That weekend, so Tau Kappa Epsilon reported um, that their townhouse on campus was vandalized um, the weekend, October 31st. Um, and they said in a statement that the house was broken into and Jewish texts were desecrated. Um, and so that after that weekend, um, LeBlanc made a statement stating that he was appalled by the incident and GWPD was working with MPD to investigate the incident and find the perpetrators. Um, so after that, we saw a really big campus response in the form of the procession, which happened on November 7th. A large group of students, I believe there was around 500 students uh, that were there gathered in Kogan um, and listened to a reading of the Torah by Rabbi Yudi, who is the head of Chabad Colonials. Um, and so we saw a massive response uh, in the coming week after the Torah was desecrated and students learned about the news of the Torah being desecrated. Absolutely. And that that message that we saw and that sentiment that we saw at the procession definitely emphasized that unity on campus. Um, but there were subsequent hateful acts such as mezuzahs being vandalized and taken down from doors. Can you talk a little bit about some of the subsequent anti-Semitic acts that happened um, after the procession? Yeah, so um, 
there were some anti-Semitic incidents that took place after the procession, um, like the mezuzah that was stolen after at the procession. Um, Rabbi Yudi had mentioned that Chabad colonials had a goal of putting up mezuzahs on Jewish students' doors um, to show that unity and to show that pride and to show that you know, they, they were not going to be scared by this person who was acting in a hateful way, um, because as he put it, that's what the person wants. And if you give into that, then you're just giving into what they wanted to see happen by that hateful action. Um, so a mezuzah was stolen and returned damaged in Shankman Hall um, about a week after the procession. And then there was also a threatening email that was sent to um, Rabbi Yudi. Um, and that email was comparing Jewish people to Nazis and stating they must have a death wish. So we saw like a really, a really threatening um, email that was sent to him. And he decided ultimately to post that email and to post a response as well. And he said he chose to do, to do that to show uh, Jewish students that there was nothing to be afraid of and GW is still a loving place even though a singular person was hateful. So seeing that same message kind of through the procession and even through these, you know, hateful acts. At the beginning of November, the university announced UPass, an unlimited Metro card for $100 a semester. Zach, how is that going to change students day to day in 2022 having access to this? The main people who will benefit from this will be the people who were already using the public transportation significantly. And those are often commuter students who might live outside of Foggy Bottom or students who have internships or jobs outside of the Foggy Bottom area and who already regularly used uh, the, the Metro. But additionally, this will also give students the opportunity to uh, just go and explore uh, uh, other areas of DC at a relatively low cost at a discount from the Metro. Uh, that's one of the main things that Student Association Vice President Kate Carpenter has been uh, noting, just, just making sure that people have opportunity to uh, visit elsewhere and to uh, attend internships or jobs or uh, just become better members of the DC community. That's all for this year. This podcast was hosted by Sejal Govindrao and produced by Sarah Sachs. We'll see you next year.